0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you from University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, West Philadelphia, the Wharton School Huntsman Hall. Sirius XM Business Radio Studios coming to you from the studios. This is Cade Massey hosting with my buddy, longtime collaborator, faculty colleague Shane Jensen, and my buddy, longtime collaborator, faculty colleague Eric Bradlow. Audie is away. Audie will be back. Gentlemen, good afternoon to you. It's Tuesday afternoon. Our regular slot and our former home. We're back. We're here periodically. Anytime we're all in town, we like to get together in the studio. That means Dion Simpkins behind the glass keeping us on the straight and narrow, bringing us in with the music. It's so much fun to have the music on these things. It just, y'all don't know, but that music gets added later normally. But when we're in the studio, it comes on live.
2: I get hyped, man. Yeah. The hype, it's, I mean, it's There's
1: hyped. There's also like the curiosity, of what he's going to do like at the, at the bottom of the hour. At the bottom of the hour, is he gets to go you know, wildcard, whatever he wants to do, whatever he's feeling. And so we get a little window into Simpkins. Matty D's back there. Matty D running the, running the lines, get bossing us around, sending us instructions, commands. He's here. It's so much fun. Um, guys, we've got a couple of guests in the middle of the show. In fact, we have three guests. We're going to do we're going to Josh Hermsmeyer for half an hour. I think we have three. Do we have three? We have two. We only have two. We have two guests, middle two segments, Hermsmeyer and Q2, and then Neil Payne, our longtime buddy, Neil Payne. In Q3, and we'll have open segments again in Q4. We've got a short Q1 in advance of the Josh conversation, open topics, anything game, fellas. What's has got your eye on the world of sports?
0: I, after watching the f- six football games this weekend, um, it reminds me, like, these teams are who I thought they were. In other words, the Vikings— Nobody surprised I forget if you. they won 12 or 13 games, whichever one they won. No, but as you pointed out, they had a negative point differential or even point differential. And, you know, they were not a typical strength of a 12 or 13 win team. I mean, they were who we thought they were. And we thought the Giants would have a good competitive chance. The Giants didn't turn the ball over. And the Giants' defense is pretty good. And so they are who we thought they were. Last night's game, the Buccaneers and the Cowboys – the Buccaneers were 8-9. and nine. We're exa- They're exactly who we thought they were. They didn't play, in my view, they didn't play worse than they played all season. They played pretty badly all season. They had a couple of good games against a few teams, but they weren't from, you know, they won the first two games of the season. They won at Cowboys, and they won at Saints to start the season. That was the highlight of the season. And then the other 16 weeks of the season happened, and they were 6-9, and nine, the remaining part of the season. And that's about right. So, I mean, they were who they
2: thought they were. Yeah. And I mean, a part of it is I think, you know, again, I don't, I, I still dislike this adding of a seventh team and the kind of fat that we've gone down to one by. But I think, you know, the two versus sevens continue to be. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I has has a seven one yet. Have we had a seven one win yet in the three years we've been doing this?
0: I don't think a seven is one. Obviously, sixes have won.
2: Yeah, and I mean, like that, that, that even happened in in, in the prior. T- I'm just saying we're almost like, but hold on, like, like, a, you know, I, I mean, I think what you're kind of tra- talking about a little bit is you know how the wild card weekend mostly kind of went, at least in your mind, kind of chalky or whatever, and we're setting ourselves up for that by creating these additional. Intent, I mean, mismatches, right? I mean, the so two versus on, seven is always going to be a bigger mismatch.
1: Fine. True. But you did take the ones off the board. So at least it's not ones versus sevens or one, ones versus sixes. Well, I, I mean, but wait
2: a the, couple years. That's coming.
1: But the AFC, the two seven was Buffalo-Miami, right? And that one was like shockingly it close. Did. That's but right. That's but
0: remember, right. It, you know, that's one of those games, again, we are who they thought they were, which was Buffalo got down. I think Buffalo gave up at least 17 points, pretty much almost directly into Miami's hands. If Buffalo Mm -hmm. doesn't give up 17 points almost directly, including Mm -hmm. one was a fumble, which actually was caught, was in the end zone. The guy jumped on it and got a touchdown. Buffalo wins that game by 14 to 17 points. We They are who, we, and you know what? Buffalo got down and they came back and then all of a sudden Josh Allen got serious and they put a bunch of points on the board. No, I think that's what can happen to Buffalo. That Buffalo is not the tightest team. The worry you have if you're Buffalo is if that happens against Cincinnati this week or if it happens in the AFC Championship game against Kansas City, you're not winning that yeah. game. You can afford that against Miami. You cannot do that. So no, I think Buffalo is exactly who I thought they are okay
1: so to, to push you to the limit there then jacksonville would be the hardest one to claim you saw ahead of time no Other, but i
0: saw it as a close game mm-hmm,
1: I, yeah, didn't the know, line, I didn't know the line the line were. was close on that too um i mean the chargers jumped out so big early now we're going to talk to josh in a little bit josh talks about how deceptive that was fine but man um you, uh, that kind of comeback, I don't. If you if you spotted them, if you spotted them, <laughs> you spotted them four touchdowns, even a, a Jacksonville team you think is talented and up and coming, you don't expect them to come back like no. that. No.
2: No. no, and I mean that's because you know, kind of epic comebacks like that have to have two components. You have to be suddenly like reverse your own team's for the comebacking team needs to reverse their fortune and starts playing really well, and the team that's ahead needs to. You, you know, it's kind of like. You know, people always kind of talk about that Super Bowl, the, the 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 Atlanta New England Super Bowl. Was that the biggest comeback in history? Was that the biggest choke? It had to be both. Those mm-hmm. kind of comeback, like to come back from like twenty plus points down in a half a game or less, you kind of need both both sides of that happen.
0: Well, not only that, but you know, I, just one play from the Super Bowl when Matt Ryan got sacked and took them out of field goal range, a field goal with three minutes left that would have iced the game. So I agree with Shane; it takes both. Sides, look. Mm-hmm. Let's even imagine San, uh, not San Diego, and the L.A. Chargers play exactly like they played the first half. But all of a sudden, Jacksonville plays better. They're not winning that game. It took both teams. L.A. had to play worse, which they did, and they had to coach worse, which they did, and the. Uh, uh, the they have, Jacksonville Jaguars, has yeah. to play better. It has yeah. to have both ways for that to happen. But look, when it got everybody has to think this way. When it was twenty-seven to seven at the half, and remember who started with the ball. Jacksonville started with the ball. They score a touchdown and then they get a stop. So now it's twenty-seven to fourteen. At that point, it can't be that shocking to yeah. you yeah, right. that that they came. Jacksonville came back and won the game. But that's it. You're, that's the only thing you're saying to yourself as a coach. Just give us a score and a stop. I don't care that we're down thirteen points still. Just a score and a stop. It's halfway through the third quarter. We're in this game. Well,
1: apparently Lawrence was heavy with the stay in the moment. We can just control what the moment is kind of perspective, which is impressive for a second year guy to be rallying the team around that kind of stay in the moment is pretty remarkable. And I'm, you know, we 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 give you a hard time about your momentum stories, Eric, but it's it's. I mean, we all get pulled into them on occasion, and I gotta believe that that kind of comeback is just good for, for Trevor Lawrence's development as a quarterback. That's a lot to build on. You need these kinds of successes to build on going forward. And, you know, they'll, they'll probably get drummed next weekend, probably. But that getting that wild-card win in that circumstance is a lot to build on for that franchise.
0: Yeah, when I, watch, when I think about the game next week, do I think Jacksonville's going to win? Of course not. But their defense may be a little bit better than we're thinking. So, the way I still think Kansas City wins by ten points, but I don't think it's going to be fifty to ten in that game. I think Kansas City's going to put up thirty, not fifty, mm-hmm. and I think Jacksonville's going to put up twenty. I mm-hmm. think that game's thirty to twenty, forty to twenty four I'm not saying that's not a blowout. Kansas City wins by two plus scores, but I don't think Kansas City's going just up and down the field on that Jacksonville defense, and that's what you have to rely on. if Jacksonville's going to win the game, they're not outscoring Kansas City. But can their defense? Do, they, do I think they have a better defense than Kansas City's defense? Yes, I do. I mm-hmm. do. Which means, if let's imagine, like in the Buffalo Miami game, let's say for whatever reason Kansas City hands Jacksonville seventeen points in that game. Yeah, Kansas, yeah. Jacksonville can win that. That's game. Sort of what it it's would Defensively, take, I think. Yeah, it's I'd... defensively. Defensively, if Kansas City hands them fourteen to seventeen points, Jacksonville can win the game.
1: Were you were you guys surprised at how? close the Ravens played the Bengals given they didn't have Lamar Jackson? No. I mean, look, we all we know the fumble. It's painful to relive the fumble situation, but they were about to go up a touchdown. They only lose by a touchdown even though they gave that one up. 98 yard, 14-point play basically. That's better than I expected them to do, playing the Bengals I, on I, the I, road I, I, without Lamar Jackson. Divisional
2: matchups in yeah. the playoffs yeah. are, I, I think... Divisional rivals play them tough, and it's not just like an energy—you know, kind of a, an energy level or, or or motivations. You've seen them already it's, twice it's that a season. Bit, it's a little bit
1: like what they say about NBA playoffs. It's the difference in NBA regular season versus the playoffs, and they get in these multi-game series, and just they, they everyone in the in the league talks about it just entirely different because you know what's going to happen, and then you react, and they react, also, and you react. You're
2: able to kind of you know uh, basically. No, no, and play to the other team's tendencies. Well, also, it's
1: not only
0: that, but if you think about a style of play, like the two things I always give John Harbaugh, in my view, and Mike Tomlin credit for, I'm not sure they're ever going to be out of a football game. Like the style of play, which is strong defense, run the football a lot more than analytics might say they should run the football, which means they're rarely going to get blown out in a game. Well, and so
1: does it also mean they're rarely going to blow out? Which
0: it way? does. It <laughs> absolutely does. But no, no. You you asked me. Was I surprised? The game is as close as it was. Okay. No. I'm saying, if hypothetically one was going to bet on the game, one might have <laughs> thought that the eight or eight and a half point spread was too much. In other words, for a divisional game against Good. a Harbaugh okay. related and, team, and, and then
2: I would I would come out of that game now saying, you know, because we saw that I wouldn't come out of that game then saying that oh well Cincinnati could barely beat the Ravens, they're going to get smoked by the Bills. The Bills know a lot more, not less, about Cincinnati's tendencies and have observed Cincinnati a lot less than the Ravens did. So I think, you know, to kind of take... Interesting. You know, because, okay. yeah, I mean, a, I mean, Cincinnati and, Cincinnati and Buffalo didn't even get the regular season game they were supposed to get for that kind of observation. Well, let me just
0: say, the interesting part about this is, I, you know, at some point we're all going to make our Super Bowl picks and stuff like that. To me, I don't know how you can pick any of the AFC teams above the whoever you think is going to win the NFC because the power in the AFC between Buffalo, Cincinnati, and Kansas City, like, first of all, to me, it's irrational statistically. You mean at this, you mean at this right point? Right now. You, you don't mean— right, yeah. No, no, right now. Yeah. I don't know how you could pick Buffalo or Cincinnati over Kansas City. You can't. Kansas City's playing Jacksonville, and Buffalo and Cincinnati are playing each other. So first of all, there's no, in my view, statistical model where it would imply Kansas City's odds aren't better than Buffalo or Cincinnati, given where we are right now. The second is, in the NFC, I just don't, you know, I I think, you know, to me, there are two elite teams in the NFC that have a very good chance of making the Super Bowl. The Eagles— and the 49ers. Those are the two teams.
2: Okay, but, no, I'm but, saying but, it's so, two versus
0: three. No, no, I, but, I mean, but, that right, changes the odds. Right, One is 50-50. Okay, Those are third, or okay. third, a
2: third. But, right? Well, right. And I'm glad you're talking about probably... I looked at this last night. In 538, Kansas City is the highest probability team and they at 25% be. to win the Super Bowl. All right. 25% though, how do you get to 25% if that... Do you think that that... A, do you think 25% twice is coherent? Base it's twice base rate. It's twice base rate. But the way you get to it, it's not hard to get to it if you believe they have like an 80% chance yeah, of beating Jacksonville. 80, 50, and 80, then 55, 55 50, yeah. f- for the Lions. 85, too. 55,
0: 55. Yeah, right. I'm happy. In fact, I think you and I even talked about this on last week's show. I think we both agree with that. I yeah. think Kansas City is about 80, 55, 55, which gets you to 25. Yeah.
1: All right. So one, I want to ask, though, about this Giants-Equals game. We've just been going on about the beauty of these divisional rivals in the uh-huh. playoffs. And, okay, if you really take that theory, Farther. Yeah. i mean it's the seven and a half point line it's across the seven it's across the seven maybe you like the giants getting seven and a half
0: well i was at the last regular season game which meant nothing to the giants uh dave uh not davis uh daniel jones didn't play saquon didn't play half the defense didn't play and the final score was 22 to 16. And I'm going to tell you something. That giant defense is mean and ferocious. I'm going to tell you right now, and I'm going to this Sunday's Saturday night's game. I don't feel that confident as an Eagles fan that this is one of those blowout types of situations no, and in mean, I mean, I mean the, Eagles, I don't.
2: the Eagles don't have many weaknesses, but they have, I think, been a little soft against the run this year. And Saquon Barkley is looking incredible right now. So there's that. I think that in my mind keeps it like I would I would take the Giants with that kind of spread. Yeah, I, the other thing is I mean I'm still triggered. Wild, wild card Giants, strong
1: defense. I've
2: unfortunately we've seen, seen, this we've seen this before. before. <laughs> I don't want to see it again, but I feel like I'm watching it again. Well, speaking of I things
1: speaking of things Could we've parallel. seen. Speaking of things we've seen before. Y'all might not be scarred by this in the way that I was, but it's certainly one of the most famous plays in NFL history. We get the Cowboys and Niners again in the playoffs in San Francisco. Not quite the same stadium, but in San Francisco, that's great fun. And by the way, Eric, when the line's three and a half, it's that's a it, it, that's a little bit of a refutation of there's two elite teams in the NFC. If this is a draw on a neutral field, well, home field isn't really three and a half anymore. But it says, I mean, the Cow, after what the Cowboys did, maybe you put it on the Bucks. But Cowboys looked good. It's going to be fun, and I just love the fact that it's Cowboys, Niners, and the NFC play. It's just good fun. There's good history
0: there. How about I'll just say quickly the following: If the Cowboys play as well as they can possibly play, it will be a very competitive game. I just don't trust Dak yeah, yeah, Prescott exactly. and the Cowboys to do it for four, three more games. If Dak, yeah. if,
2: if Dak is on, they can beat anybody. But Dak is inconsistently on. That's it.
1: Well, that, that they might have sold some, some. They might have created some false hope in the beauty of the game last night, um, but. We'll find out. It's, that's where we are. We've got four games in front of us for the weekend. Glad you're going to make that Phillies game, Eric. That's, Eagles. That's, Eagles. I mean, I mean, I mean, the Eagles game. Um, and I, and Eric and Shane has talked me into the divisional rival theory of believing the Giants have a better match, better hope there than than I might have thought. All right, guys, that's been Q one. We have three quarters still ahead of us. Come back and join us after the break.
0: You are listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Studio version. We don't get studio versions very often these days. We do right now. Jan, whatever Jan is today, 17, Jan 17, second show of the year, second show of 23, I think. We have in the studio Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, and this is Cade Massey. Our buddy, Audie Weiner, is out doing Audie Weiner things, but he'll be back. Not today, but he will be back. Some combination of us are here every week or most every week. I don't know, 49, 50 weeks, 51 weeks out of the year, we hit it it pretty hard, fellas. You guys can jump in, too. We wish you would. Jump in on Twitter. Jump in on email. Our Twitter handle is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We tweet about the world of sports analytics. We follow all of our guests, guests like our Q2 guest, Josh Hermsmeyer, who is one of the most entertaining followers in sports analytics. We strongly recommend him at Frisco Josh. You're about to get half an hour visit with Frisco Josh. You can also hit us up by email. We have a mailbag we run by email. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. We love to hear from you. We hear from people they tell us about what we could do better. They give us some ideas. They give us stats. I got the great, a great stat. You want to hear a great stat? Can I find it? I'll find it here at the beginning of another quarter and give it to you. Got a stat unsolicited by email. It was awesome. We share these things. We read them. We get as much on the air as we can. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Rolling into Q2. We're going to do interviews in Qs 2 and 3. Old school. We're kind of slowly migrating back to our old school format this week. We're in the middle of football. NFL you know, it's heating up and winnowing down at the same time. It's that moment of the year, and we need to talk football with somebody. Who do we think about? Who do we think about, guys? Who's one of our favorite people to talk football with? Frisco Josh. Frisco Josh. Maybe the
0: founder of airyards.com yeah, also. Yeah,
1: exactly. How about that? Josh Hermsmeyer, good afternoon to you. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me. Always good to be on Wharton Moneyball.
1: Well, it's always good to have you on. It looks like you're dialing in from home, if we have that right, if we recognize things properly. Which is Idaho, somewhere in Idaho, Hermsmeyer Land in Idaho, yes?
3: Undisclosed location in Uh, northern Idaho, yep.
1: You reveal it Uh periodically. I get texts from friends saying, hey, hanging out at Hermsmeyer's place, just taunting me with, like, beers and steaks and pictures of Idaho. That's all. You disclose it to people, is what I'm saying. It is disclosed on occasion.
3: On occasion, yeah, yeah. But we we try and keep it close.
1: I think people (laughs) that
0: show up at his house know the location is what we all know.
1: Yeah, it's. It's rough, tight, tight It's a
3: shocking development, yes. (laughs) You aren't blindfolded and hooded.
1: Right. Well, you know, you could take that extra step. Um, Josh, good afternoon to you. It's Tuesday afternoon. We just had a special, I don't know how many years have they been doing that? Not many, right? Monday night football version of the wild card round, which is terrific. So we got six games across three days. I felt like the whole world was watching that game last night. I mean, like, literally, people dialing for playoffs. People dial in for Monday Night Football. People dial in for the Dallas Cowboys. All those circles intersected, and the whole world was watching this game last night for, you know, at least the first quarter. Well, then they kept watching because the dude kept on missing extra points, which was its own source of drama.
3: I mean, I'm still glowing from the first five games, and to have that be kind of the chaser was a little disappointing. But, yeah, you're right. The the extra points. This is... I did not expect going into this weekend that I'd see a game with four interceptions from one guy... And four missed points <laughs> from another in the same wild card weekend. That was pretty mm-hmm. impressive. And they mm-hmm. both won. Both teams won for <laughs> that. Right. Despite did, uh, these
4: things, yeah.
0: I'm just asking you. Let me ask you a quick question about the game, Josh. As you saw it, um, we know the outcome, and it looked like obviously the Cowboys were the much better team in the game. But do you ever, someone that watches sports, thinks about the analytics of sports? For me, who's a Bucks fan, I think if only Tom Brady hadn't thrown that red zone interception down six to nothing, let's imagine he's the standard Tom Brady who hadn't thrown a red zone interception like three and a half years. Let's imagine the bucks go up seven to six instead of now, you know, it, everything turns around the other direction. Do you think there's any chance the game turns out differently or you think, no, it was just so much evidence that the better team won the game.
3: So I, I, I've been talking about this a little bit lately, but, I don't believe in the hot hand in the NFL, so positive momentum. But I do think there's pretty good evidence for negative momentum. Like, teams can have meltdowns, and that's a thing. And I think it certainly looked to me like a bit of a meltdown for Tampa Bay across the board. They just – Brady couldn't get started. He looked ineffectual. He looked weak. And and, and that that particular play, I think, it was the first time that it happened since – was it 2019? Yeah, 2019 or? is yeah. the
0: last red zone interception he had thrown.
3: Right. So I, I just I, I do think, you know, we kind of poo poo in the analytics community, the mental aspect of performing and, and high end athletic events. And I, but I think that I think that when things start going really bad, I think that can snowball. And I think that's what happened. So, yeah, no, I, I think this could have been look at the very end. It, it sort of felt like they just ran out of time. Right. Like it, somehow if Brady. Could have kept going for another quarter. That he could have made it close. It kind of felt like that at the end. Like he was, tr- the team might have put something together. So perhaps you're
0: right. Well, you know, let me just counter that to our fans here, because they know I'm a Bucks fan. Um, at when the Bucks did score and make it 24 to six, they did have an opportunity to. Stop the Cowboys from using a fifteen-play drive and driving down the field, and the defense didn't look like they could stop them. Yeah, if you're a hardcore
1: time. momentum guy, which on occasion you put on that, oh, hat, I am only a momentum provoke, guy. Then you would say, well, had they only converted that two-point try, then maybe the defense would have stopped those guys. Because I'm that's... not a
0: micro-level <laughs> momentum guy, but, but that, I do believe. I mean, that. I, I,
2: yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, and I, I, Josh, it'd be interesting to hear what you know analysts can kind of tell about this. To me, it seemed like. Dallas was dominating on both sides of the ball, The li- like the lines, like offensive line versus defensive line on both sides so dramatically that, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Bucks got a couple garbage-time touchdowns to the end when Dallas went kind of full-prevent defense, but I think the counterfactual, you know, I-, I have a hard time coming up with a-, a reasonable counterfactual where the Bucks somehow pull that off, even with like you know you know taking that interception out of it or something like that but i don't know i mean maybe, i mean that was again just me watching my you know the team i was cheering for getting creamed you know on monday night football maybe it actually wasn't as stark a difference as i thought it was in, in terms of the o line and d line play
3: oh gosh And the trenches no that was a mess for tampa bay and and the quick game wasn't working the way that tom brady hoped i mean even some of their screen passes were just not working so no i like i and i and You know, again, like it's all caught up and it's all fraught to say that, you know, all these negative plays strung together equals momentum, but or negative momentum. But um, it certainly looked like nothing worked for Tampa Bay on offense, no matter what they tried to do. All their answers to what was going on on defense didn't seem to function the way they'd hoped.
1: Did you hear uh, Orlovsky speculating in the middle of the game about the Cowboys having this defensive signals? He was pure speculation, I believe, but that's how bad it was. Well,
3: so I can't give names, but I was at a defensive coordinator's house and he told me that they had stolen signals in a game, an important game once. So I know it happens. And <laughs> and so who knows? It certainly looked like we yeah. knew what the heck was coming.
1: Well, well look, can you say just a touch more about this negative momentum idea? I'm surprised Eric hasn't jumped all over because Eric is in so much in the market for momentum stories. Well, we so-
0: agree 50%. I agree in positive and negative momentum, <laughs> but keep going.
1: So uh, how serious are you and how might one operationalize it? Because you, you know, you write provocative articles, but you underpin them empirically. So is this something you've done? Is this something you're planning to do? How might you operationalize this idea of negative momentum?
3: So um, it was actually a great article last year, I believe, on ESPN. Um, I'll tweet it out after we're done. And I can't unfortunately remember the author. He did a great job, though. But he basically came into the problem looking at it saying, I don't believe in momentum. And he interviewed a bunch of people, uh, talked to some uh, sports psychologists, Mike Leach, a bunch of people, and what he came down to is that we overuse the word momentum, and especially in broadcasts, it's kind of been beaten out of any kind of meaningful. Uh, it doesn't have any meaning any longer in terms of how it's described. But that he does the study seem to support the idea that once, like, if you're told something negative, it takes three times as long for you to break out of that mindset as if. Uh, it, as if you were told something – or let me put that the opposite way. So if you're told something positive, you need to be told it over and over again before it has the same effect on you emotionally and mentally right. as one negative comment. That's probably the right way to put it. Could we look? And at- so I think that when you have multiple negative things happening to you in a, in a short period of time, I think that that can affect you and the others around you. Mm-hmm. Could um, we so
0: not – Look at the, let's say, play-by-play expected points added and look at the serial correlation and see if there's an asymmetric effect where, you know, the probability of negative given negative, let's assume it's first-order effect, probability of negative given negative. That might be different than the marginal probability of negative, but the probability of positive given positive is not different than the marginal probability. Could, so that would be one way just to mathematically operationalize the, yeah, it. Yeah, I,
2: I mean I, – I just I feel like it's hard to because every football play is an interaction between two opposing sides. I don't know how you tease out because when I'm thinking about negative momentum, I mean, I'm, I mean, I think it would be a great kind of theory to kind of like help explain things like what we saw with that, you know, the Chargers Jaguars game or something like that, where you have a team completely dominating for a half. And then all of a sudden some, you know, kind of, the, you know, a couple of bad things happen and it just sort of snowballs like that. Like, but but that's but, such
3: a that's such a great example because I actually don't think the, the the Chargers were dominating. They were playing pretty pedestrian ball. I mean they 20 of their points or something like that came off turnovers. They right. were just getting really really fortunate. in in, in turnovers. And then they weren't even really capitalizing on on them all that well. I think they had two, two field goals, one on a muff punt where they took over at the six and they couldn't even convert that. So I just think that like in that game particular, this would be confounding on this whole operation. This whole idea that we're trying to find this signal is that you would get games like this, where really all that happened was Lawrence became the player. He was all season in the second half. Mm It wasn't like anything really changed in terms of his play all that much. Like his first Interception was a tip pass by Bosa, so it was just kind of wrong place at the wrong time. Um, the second play, I, you could argue, it should have been uh, DPI. Um, so they're just—they—they they had to overcome—they they had every bad break the the team. They had to overcome every adversity that you could put in front of a football team in that first half. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the Chargers were just kind of—I don't know—they were just kind of muddling through. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, I think Brandon Staley kind of—he said, he spoke to that at the halftime. He said that wasn't our best half of football. He knew it.
0: Let me put a, another mathematical try on this since I wanted to stay with Mona for 30 seconds more. Let's imagine we don't think it's a macro level thing. It's a micro level thing. Like players can get affected by negative performance. Like they do badly. Like that kicker last night for the Cowboys, he misses one. There's more chance he's going to miss the next one. Now, let's. Imma- I'm just coming up with a theory. You can say it's mm-hmm. wrong. Negative momentum or positive momentum happens at the individual player level. And it's correlated across players. So it's almost like a contagion, like a network model. Like one player starts by making a bad play... Then another player has to try to compensate for that other player's bad play. And then he tries to overperform. Then there's, so you could imagine a viral spreading model where it's not teams have negative momentum. It starts with a player, goes to some other player, then it goes to some other player. And if enough players are performing negatively, then it appears in aggregate that there's negative momentum. That's a testable mathematical theory, mm-hmm. by the way.
1: Mm-hmm. The, the, the trick in all these is that you have to show that the state is different after one of these things occurs, as opposed to there just being a regime shift, a negative regime shift, where it's just overall lower performance. Which is the more parsimonious explanation? Like, look, look, the, the the Cowboys just had the Bucks number, and the Bucks just looked bad as a result. It wasn't that one bad execution led to another. So there's ways to parse that empirically, but that's the real test on it being momentum and not just a regime shift. Let's talk more broadly about the six games that we saw. I, I kind of want to just get a quick rundown. Your take, always interested in Meyer's take on like the six teams we saw. In both, in some cases, both the winners, or in some cases the winners, sometimes the loser. But like, you're just talking about the Chargers. You were you were kind of unimpressed even in the first half. You know, everyone loves Herbert. Everyone loves Staley. Like, how do we feel about the franchise right now? How do we feel about where they are?
0: I don't think everyone everybody loves, Staley. loves
1: Herbert. Yeah. I, everyone loves the uniforms. I love Staley. Maybe okay. I don't. Maybe maybe my 20, maybe my twenty one love is still. Okay. You know, I'm still biased by that. But how do we feel about the Chargers franchise right now? Yeah,
3: Cade, you, you really like that article uh, about I Staley I'm and, still and love the it. analytics. I'm at the not over of it. Look,
1: he was quoting he was quoting Michael Lewis's book on Kahneman and Tversky. I mean, he was he was like thumbing through it and giving passages. That's pretty good stuff. It was good
3: stuff. Too bad he didn't actually live it this time. I season. know, I
1: know, I know. But, so, I, but that's always interesting to me when these guys back off of their progressiveness. You know, And I, I, these guys, we don't appreciate how much of a political job they have. The coaches, the general managers, and by God, even the owners, they are under political pressure. In some sense, it's probably even legitimate. I mean, they need a certain level of support to function. And, and you've got to be really strong to stand in the face of that for a long time, but 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 what I don't understand in his case is I thought he kind of won the day, he won the day in some sense last year, but maybe we don't know the ways in which he, maybe he gets mocked at like the head coaches' meetings in Florida or whatever. Maybe within that fraternity, he lost the day and he wanted to kind of kind of tack back.
2: And also, I mean, uh, he's had some notable things in twenty in the last most recent season with like how he's dealt with you know injuries and stuff like that as well as well as like you know playing you know getting mike williams injured in like a meaningless game i mean i think there's coaching decisions beyond his sort of risk adversity or risk you know tolerance in 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 strategic ways that like i I, you know haven't spoke well for him necessarily but i've josh i'm sure you've got a take
3: on that no i i completely agree with that uh but i have an alternate take on like so much of it is retconning. So there's retroactive continuity change, like this this idea that like after the season ends or after something occurs, these coaches go back and, and pin a narrative to it. And and I think what was actually happening with him, or at least my assumption or my my theory is that he was just being aggressive. He had a bad defense. He was trying to cover it up. So he was just hyper aggressive on offense. And then when that changed, he was happy to take the, you know, the plaudits. He was happy happy to have people tell him he was a genius, happy to say he was smart. They hear all this stuff that these, these people aren't idiots. They know about, you know, EPA. They know about all of these ideas that analytics has put forth. They just don't live them. They don't believe in them when it, when the rubber hits the road. And so this year, when things actually where there was an expectation of winning, when he actually felt like he had a defense that could stand up and punch, I think he just and that there was some political pressure. Absolutely the case. I think he just abandoned it all because it just what, it didn't suit him any longer.
0: Yeah, Josh, I was going to ask you about one play, but also relates to this about how the narrative can change. Could you imagine the change in narrative from that one play in the Ravens game where Tyler Hunley tries to go over the top? The ball is flicked away. The guy goes 98. Remember, the Ravens, with, I don't know, six, seven minutes left in the game, are about to go up seven. Their win probability is at least 80% at that point. The play goes 98 98 yards the other way. And now, instead of the narrative of the Bengals coach losing a game that they could not lose, and John Harbaugh wins with Tyler Hundley and great defense and playing his style, the narrative is entirely different on one
3: play. Such a great point. And you know who did that exact same play and it paid off for him? Lawrence. The exact same play. Pushed it over the goal line, but it worked out. And yeah. Right in the middle of their comeback. So I mean just right there. That's it. But yeah, that was an amazingly.
2: And I think they put actually play. the win probability change on
1: the broadcast.
2: I mean, it was a swing of like at least fifty percent or something of
3: like
1: course. that. Of yeah.
0: course. It had to go from it had to go about fifty percent. I mean
1: they did they, they their defense was playing well against a very good offense and it just you know, it just yeah, it was a rough, rough moment, a big moment. It was a big moment. I wished I could have consumed it neutrally. There was a world, the world was reacting. I was jealous of all the people who didn't feel, feel strongly about who won that game. Um, let's, let's stay there for a moment because I think that team presents some of the most interesting questions. If it's just a narrative and if it's just one quarterback's actions, then that should mean that nobody should overreact. But, of course, you could be unhappy about that game from the Ravens' perspective for other reasons. Um, Where do you think the Ravens' franchise is right now? And, of course, they've got one of the bigger decisions, maybe the biggest decision in the NFL in this offseason. But then at some point, I mean, what do you think Bashadi is thinking right now in terms of his coach, in terms of his quarterback? I mean, what's your take on where the Ravens are right now?
3: Uh, I... I I'm not bullish. I'm not bullish on where the Ravens are right now. And, 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 and a part of that is just, I think what they're trying to do is kind of reconstitute the past. Like they they signed a, a safety trying to find an Ed Reed. They, they drafted queen and now they've signed um, Roquan Smith in an attempt to get, you know, another linebacker in the middle like they have had in the past and I think they're trying to build a team that will be able to win without stellar QB play in kind of anticipation of Lamar leaving and I just that worries me terribly. Um I just don't think that that's a I mean, they, Harbaugh is good enough in that, and that and and McDonald is just excellent at what he's been doing this year um the de- defensive coordinator mm-hmm. of the Ravens. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't think you're going to have a winning team that way in that division. It's just it's just too stacked every year, and it's is, just too competitive. Is it that so, division,
1: uh, or is it in 2022? It, 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 to what extent are they trying to recreate the way they've done things? In the they've had some success in the early 2000s, and then 2012 or whatever. That was a that's their franchised identity to some sense. In some sense, and is is that just not as winning a strategy as it used to be from a roster construction and style of play perspective?
3: I mean, they might in the near term be the beneficiary of some league-wide micro-trends. Uh, like, for instance, right now we're seeing, you know, a little bit more efficiency in the run game uh, because of teams are starting to get wise up a little bit and they're try- starting to play the pass first, and uh, so that they're allowing those runs to occur. So they might actually be the team that comes in and kind of stands things on its head. They kind of, you know, are, mm-hmm. are the opposite mm-hmm. of the meta game, mm-hmm. and so that that might actually be to their benefit. But over the long term, you need a QB. Um, so if it's a stopgap thing where they're just, you know, searching high and low for a new quarterback, and if Lamar does move on, then maybe that'll work. But uh, no, I just, I just, I, 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 just been pretty disappointed with some of the personnel moves they've made lately. And and, and as far as Bashaudy and and Harbaugh goes, uh, so my wife just came home. Uh, as, as far as Bashaudy and Harbaugh goes, I think he's keeping Harbs. I think you keep Harbs, right? I mean, Harbs is great. Um, I I'd like for him
1: to. Yeah. We we underestimate how many dimensions matter in coaching football. And we get obsessed on like the clever play callers and we forget that there's, you know, 16 or 17 or I don't know, 56 other dimensions or six, even six we can't keep in our head. You have people like Mike Tomlin, who is not progressive, one of the most successful coaches in the history of the NFL. And yet, yet again this year at 500 or better, you have coaches. I'm curious to get your take on this. How, how, tell me again how the Seahawks made the playoffs this year and I mean we all ushered we all thought Carol should have retired years ago and he's getting it done because he's I mean, this is my super simple I'm barely in touch take he's really good at some other dimensions And it's just – it's a highly dimensional job, and we human beings focus on, like, one or two at a time. Or look how how
2: amazing the Jaguars and Giants are compared to last year when, you know, those teams are basically just a coach different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, there are more more changes than that, obviously, but I kind of – I do think it's multifaceted. And when it's, like, very bad, it's pretty apparent. And when it's very good, it's pretty apparent. But in that wide middle ground, how you separate out the head coach from the coordinators – and should you even separate him out? Because the head coach, you know, has involvement with the coordinators. It's incredible. I feel like it's super
1: difficult to evaluate. But uh, all that said, I mean, this is my simple little reptile mind. You know, you watch you watch play calling by the Ravens and then you go watch play calling by the Cowboys. You're like, hmm, I'd like to have that offensive coordinator. Now, that's just, you know, this week and, you know, it's all outcome biased and all that stuff. But it does feel like, Harbaugh used to be m- much more, maybe not as an offensive mind. Of course, he's not running the offense. But he was more progressive. The least caught up to him some there. Moreover, the offense just keeps on evolving league-wide. And these coaches keep on emerging. These 28-year-olds, 36-year-olds, these young guys. And, man, I mean, that's it's tough to be behind on that dimension. It's hard not to pay attention to that dimension. I'm not yeah, saying get rid yeah. of Harbaugh. I love Harbaugh. But it's you know you do feel like you suffer some Sundays watching it
3: well I mean so Staley just got rid of Lombardi Mm -hmm. um and I mean some are saying he's being scapegoated I think that maybe LeFleur in in New York Jets he got scapegoated a little bit I mean he had nothing to work with whereas I think Roman you know had a lot to work with and and he's really hasn't evolved that offense in the in the past four or five years so that's that's tough. That's tough to see, and 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 you certainly would hope with a team that's built the way it is, right, to run the ball that they do better in the red zone, and they just mm-hmm. have a real tough time there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Or I mean, looking at you know, I mean, Leftwich just got uh, fired as offensive coordinator today as well. Oh, did he get fired? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I mean, you know, again, I mean, seeing seeing what seeing the in- in- incompetence or inability for the Bucks' offense to function this year compared to what it has for the couple of years previous it was pretty stark you know but again was that all on leftwood like I mean obviously left which you know they ended up you know finding somewhat responsible on that but there was a lot of injuries and stuff like that too it's 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 hard to kind of separate these things out
1: but back to the political nature of the job I mean yeah. guys are going to get scapegoated that's part of the deal and that our job as sophisticated observers consumers fans of this sport is to try not to Get the narrative wrong. The narratives are there for the taking. The overreactions are there, and we're human beings, and we have to somehow try to see through that. And we have to accept that guys are going to get scapegoated. And for right for right or wrong, they get scapegoated. I,
0: so, I, so let me ask, Josh, how do you see I, – what I thought Cade was going to ask after the Bengals-Ravens game was now that the Bengals looked somewhat mortal to me – matter of fact, I think the Ravens were the better team – Do you have any thoughts about the Bengals going to the Bills? Like, are the Bengals going to win that game? I don't know why you'd have confidence that the Bengals are going to win that game. Because the Bills look
3: so strong. They're they're down three linemen. How are they going to win? Yeah, I don't don't see that. Uh, I think we could have blowouts all all weekend long. I think it could just be all the favorites, the chalk just crushing everyone.
1: Speaking of a more positive, okay, hold kind on. Of, remind me how the NFC is stacking up because I was, San Francisco I wasn't against
2: Dallas and uh, Philadelphia. Okay, against, so that one uh,
1: surprises me. So you think you think the Niners may crush the Cowboys?
3: Yeah, I, I think I think the Niners will go to the Super Bowl and lose. But I I, I just uh, I, maybe it's my rooting interest. I love that Brock Purdy is doing so well. Um, and again. Let's. I. I don't. I don't want to oversimplify things. Is that it's because you're a big a Iowa
1: State fan? Is that what's going on there? I, I, I absolutely love that the last this,
3: pick can, in the draft that everyone passed on. Yes. Is winning playoff games uh-huh. like? And, and So, so hold and, hold on, Say me, more.
1: I, say more about why you love this. Because it's such an unusual event, or is it because philosophically you're in some kind of battle?
3: Yeah, there is a philosophical battle. Is I guess I'm also burned from the wars of trying to understand and predict and project QB play into the NFL and, and realizing that there really isn't a good answer and that people who are overconfident about their opinions and who is going to be good. Um, uh, in the fact that they get shown up like this and then just kind of let it roll off their back. I mean, I I just think this is a, an important moment. Like I think people need to internalize that Mr. Irrelevant is winning playoff games (laughs) and, and that, and what that means. And I don't, I don't think it's happening to the degree that it should.
1: Um, Okay, real quickly. The pushback is he's in that particular offense. Now, is that you're okay with that? That's part of your story or oh, that's or, definitely that's part of your story. Because, too. But, but what if what if Shanahan's such a what if Shanahan's the rare commodity and then he's not available so you can't create these systems willy-nilly and drop the the 300th pick the 250th pick in there.
3: But even the Niners don't believe it's all Shanahan. Otherwise they wouldn't have spent three firsts and a fifth. On maybe,
1: maybe they're wrong. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe they have it right under the nose and they're not seen it clearly.
3: I mean, yeah, do you I mean, think
2: Jimmy Garoppolo is a particularly good quarterback, Okay. I'm 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 not because he and got I, draw, think... I mean, you know, I mean that that you know how how we we do have observations on how other quarterbacks have done in that system. I think That's Brock Purdy's looked much better than Jimmy Garoppolo. Okay, okay, just in that same system. So there's that. I mean, we've only got six games worth of observations, but... So I, I'm
1: asking the question sincerely. I love your I love your overarching enthusiasm for this empirical event. I love it because I'm on the same boat you are completely. But I am asking myself that question. It's like, is it just the quarterback... You, you didn't say just. I'm putting just in there. Is it just the quarterback play is so hard to forecast? And as long as you get lucky with the right guy, you're going to be great. Or is it that and it's so interdependent with the system or the players or the coaches
3: it both things are true absolutely true um but so many people when they're analyzing qb play they're they're talking about traits and these things that kind of travel absent scheme and absent the perfect situation and they're saying this is how we need to you know you know rank our players and i'm saying well if you're not good at that talent part (laughs) you know if you're not good at ranking those traits correctly then what are you actually adding to the conversation let's just get good coaches who call good plays smash all the easy buttons put good schemes in place and and then just take your shots on your quarterback until you get someone who's going to get you to the playoffs Mm -hmm. um and and that's a just a completely different philosophy than Mm -hmm. than what teams Mm -hmm. are are currently using to build to build Mm -hmm.
0: teams i just wanted to see josh if you would agree with this potential skill set so i saw a great analysis on espn where they were talking about brock purdy and they were, they were talking about a particular play where there were eight different things he could have done on the play. And in their mind, he chose the right one. And so my view is that, is that a skill set you see? In other words, they always that this person can read the defenses or go multi-level or you know go to their fourth or fifth option. That, to me, was the most impressive thing that I've seen about him, and I've now gone onto analytics websites where they've basically have built like a choice model of all the choices he could make. How accurate is he in choosing the positive EPA play? And it turns out to be, he's really good at that. Is that something that could ever become something we measure?
3: That's fascinating. What, what, what website did you go to to, to find that choice I will model?
0: send you the link to it. It was actually, okay. literally, it looked at every play and said he's got four options, six options, seven options. You can compute the expected points of each, and it's just like a, you know, pick one out of seven model. Did he pick the right one? And then you try to compare his probability to the norm in the National Football League. I thought it was one of the most fascinating analyses I've seen. He's scoring really high on making the right choices.
3: No, that sounds amazing. That sounds like an incredible analysis. I'd love to check it out. And just I just wrote an article on Purdy last week and I watched all his throws and I can tell you that a lot of the stuff was schemed up, certainly. Um And I, I used one as an exemplar of that. It was this orbit motion, double fake and then a Y leak where the where the where the where the tight end actually fakes to block and then. You know, leaks out and, and he scored a touchdown with George Kittle. who was mostly yards after the catch. Yeah. There's lots of that, right? Yeah. There's yeah. definitely a lot of that with Brock Purdy. But then there are these beautiful plays where he goes past his first read and throws it deep down the field and reads the defense, stands in the pocket. These are the throws you expect of a first round quarterback, of a starting quarterback not the last pick in the draft. And that's amazing to me.
1: You know, he did start for about 14 years at Iowa State, so he had some experience, he had <laughs> collegiate experience, really, really off the charts. Um, so other, Another interesting quarterback that has evolved in his time at the NFL, but yet remains a question mark and highly debated, is our local quarterback. And we didn't get to see them play this past week. You just said something about them because you said you expect the Niners to make the Super Bowl, which means you think they're going to, Take them or the Giants. I'm assuming you like the Eagles over the Giants. But what's your position on the Eagles these days? And like the Ravens we talked about earlier, historically people have thought about them as a very sharp club. Um, I don't think they've done anything to solidify that reputation lately, but they've got this question mark. At least some people debate what they have at quarterback.
3: I think the Eagles are the, the sharpest birds now. Uh, I think they have to take the number one spot um, in terms of the smartest organization, sadly, as a, as a Ravens fan. But no, they've just been doing everything right for probably the past two years. And um, certainly, we're doing a lot of things right before then. So, uh, no, I, I think they're great. The consequence
1: is you stack up a bunch of small edges, essentially, because none, none of the, no one move is going to make the difference. But if you, if you have all these, you said smash the easy buttons, each of those easy buttons gets you a little edge. And you stack up enough of them, and they might accumulate to a substantive edge, and then you have a better chance of luck breaking your way. So that's something the Eagles have going in their favor. I'm sorry, I interrupted you.
3: No, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, um, and, and I think the other thing about the Eagles that I really respect is I have this philosophy of what the point of analytics are and is, whatever. It, it, and it's, 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 not, it's not tactical. It's not even seasonal. It's this idea that you have a transparent process that everyone understands and that you gain those edges, right? So you win more. And then because of that, you can build a culture. A culture that allows you to not just put the team first. You can actually play favorites with people who deserved to be played favorites to. You can treat people like humans and not, you know, be a complete uh, misanthrope, be a, be a, a, a kind of a, a, a person who will do whatever it takes to win. Okay, oh, no, 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 no,
1: connect those dots for me. Why is it that? You, I see that you use analytics consistently for years to start winning. So you say, once you start winning, then you can build a culture. What is the connection between a winning culture and being able to treat people like humans, not misanthropically?
3: Well, the idea here is that, you know, you get, you get cushion, right? And, and everything that's left after you've wrung out the edges that are empirical it is, is this uncertainty. And a good leader, a, a good GM can then use that uncertainty in creative ways to motivate people. And, and again, you motivate people by spending that capital on the people who deserve it to be spent on. And, and you like I said, you can play favorites in a way that everyone respects because everyone plays favorites. Um, and, and, and you can either do it in a way that's kind of opaque and that causes so's dissension within your organization, or you can do it in a way that rewards the people who are doing it the right way. And are you, and so, are
1: you saying there's when you don't have wins – in your reputation, you don't have the cushion. You have to make some misanthropic plays in desperation. You're like, you have to do some things that are against culture in order to seek that edge that you didn't get somewhere else. Is that, is that the, is that the connection?
3: That's correct. And, and, and so, I mean, I guess the, the canonical example here is, is is the Browns. They, they don't use analytics as I understand it. Um, They, they are seeking edges in a way that destroys culture. And, and I don't think that's the point of analytics. Like you don't sign a guy and, and trade and leverage your future um, for someone like Deshaun Watson, who is just toxic in, in so many different aspects and uh, and then expect to be build a winning culture because that that's really the goal. Again, that's the goal of of, of building in these cushions, of, of of stacking these edges is so that you have the ability to to build the team the right way.
1: Well, that's a big topic and super interesting and something we have to talk more about, Josh, seriously, because often people think about analytics and culture being antithetical. And I think most coaches run one way or the other. But you're arguing that not only do they not have to be negative, they can be positively related. That seems really important because folks do get that wrong. People get it wrong in both directions. People get it wrong on both sides. And so that's it. But it's a big topic and we'll have to dig it up on another occasion. Josh, we have to let you go. We can do this for a long time, but we have to let you go. Thank you for giving us as much time as you did. Um thank you for visiting with us here at this fun moment in the NFL season. And um, keep up the good stuff. People can catch you at um at Frisco Josh on Twitter. They can catch your writing on 538. What's what's what, what have you got up there? When is when is something new coming up there? What's the latest with you in 538?
3: So, depending on what happens this week, I'll probably be doing an article on Hertz next week. So that'll be interesting. There be you talking go. about the, uh, the Eagles and and how they uh, you know they drafted him when they still had Wentz and all the rest. So, right? Yeah, and Wonderful. just
0: quickly, Josh, you said you think the Niners are going to lose in the Super Bowl. Who are they losing to? Uh,
3: the Chiefs. I think the Chiefs win another one. Okay. Man what do you guys think Bill's what,
1: mafia? What you think? Bill's, I'm with bills you on mafia. that one Sick
2: em. I think the Chiefs win. I'll be cheering for not the Chiefs, but I think the chiefs win
1: uh, Would it have been different if Buffalo had beaten Cincinnati and secured home field? No, you don't think so. okay, you think Chiefs are that much better. Oh man, all right, well, I'm on the karma side of things. I, I'm going bills. I, I'm just going bills until until it happens. just to, the world needs a Bill's victory.
3: I think that the uh, the Bills fans are, are kind of on my side I think they're fatalistic they, they're just waiting for the shoe to drop yeah they really they, they don't have much confidence
1: well it'll be fun it'll be fun to play out Josh thanks man good to talk to you we'll talk thanks, to you guys. soon Josh Hermsmeyer you can follow him on Twitter at Frisco Josh you can follow his stuff on 538 it says he has a piece on Hertz coming up soon that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball we still have a half to go come back and join us after the break
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics rolling into the second hour here from the studio, from the SiriusXM Business Radio Studios in Huntsman Hall. This is Cade Massey along with my buddies and longtime collaborators Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen audie weiner is away sadly for us away maybe happily for him poking around great places he'll be back audie'll be back audie's always gonna be back we are moving into the second interview segment of the day we are delighted to welcome back on the show longtime favorite hometown boy neil Payne. neil good to see you welcome back
4: Great to see you guys, and I noticed from the Zoom that we're on that you guys are all in the studio, which brings back a lot of memories. Also,
1: well, if, for real memories, we'd need to be that building on the other side of that building, and in the basement. Where in the you, basement. Where yeah. we the very you might have been our first guest over there, Neil Payne, when we were just getting this thing off the ground. Was still in Philadelphia at the dawn of five thirty eight, pre dawn, pre five thirty eight, and we did our we did our recording in the basement over there before this thing was finished. So we go back a little ways. Good to see ya. Um, understand, you know, you've been with Five Thirty Eight since the beginning there, and you still are, of course. You can, you guys can follow Neil. He is a great follow on Twitter. It's at Neil underscore Payne at Neil underscore Payne with an E on Twitter. But you can also find his work on Five Thirty Eight. Neil, you've got a couple of changes since we've seen you. It sounds like you have. You're not in the in the in the big city anymore. Where, where are you calling in from today?
4: Yeah, I'm calling in from Bentonville, Arkansas, of all places, and uh, that's where me and my wife moved uh, around Thanksgiving. She got a great job opportunity here, and uh, I really, that's the first time I've ever lived outside of one of the major, like, eastern (laughs) seaboard cities, I guess, if you consider Atlanta in there uh, as well, and yeah, I'm I'm liking it so far, kind of a, you know, more chill vibe here, but uh, for those who don't know, Bentonville is like the home of Walmart and uh, Hunt Foods and all of these sort of, you know, corporations that are here because of, uh, they're in the Walmart orbit. So uh, it's it's kind of not what I expected, but in a good way. So I, I like it here.
1: Neil, I forgot for a moment about your Atlanta time. I, I wondered to what extent your time in Atlanta prepared you in some way for the big cultural shift moving to Arkansas from the Northeast.
4: I will say it. Uh, it reminds me of the suburbs of Atlanta, where I, you know, went to high school and kind of grew up. Uh, it's like they sort of took all that, including some of the traffic. It's. Uh, I, I'm told that that has been getting worse here because a lot of people are moving here. It's. It's been one of the fastest growing. So you're the areas problem.
1: You're the, the country. You're the problem, Neil. You see. I'm that's... part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, mm-hmm.
4: I'm like a carpetbagger or whatever mm-hmm. you
1: would call it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> moving,
4: mm-hmm. moving in.
1: Well, uh, speaking of changes, you are doing more editing and less writing at Five Thirty Eight. Is that right? What? How have your responsibilities shifted?
4: Yeah, so um, people who used to listen to our podcast Hot Takedown um, in its second iteration would know Sarah Ziegler, our former sports editor. She moved on last June to the New York Times, and so I took over as sports editor then. And so I've been doing most of the time on that i would say uh since since then and so you know it's a different shift a a lot more managerial and things like that which may be appropriate for business radio here but Mm -hmm. um less time to write less time to Mm -hmm. to do things like that but i still try to dip my toe in every once in a while especially when it comes to sports like baseball and hockey i would say those are my my two uh favorite Mm -hmm. sports and my favorite ones to write about
1: well, we want to dig into hockey in a little more detail because we're we're kind of trying to get up to speed on it slowly, but real quickly before that editing when when people hear editing, they think about somebody with the red pen kind of doing line edits on an article. But I'm guessing that the life of an editor, you just mentioned management, is much more about corralling, wrangling, cajoling writers. is Is that right as opposed to line edits?
4: Yeah, I think that's totally right. I would say probably the line editing is maybe like 20 to 30% of what I do and the other 70 to 80 is mapping out the big picture of what we want to cover who's going to cover it and you know how we're going to do that in sort of a way that makes the the section of the website run on time so yeah it's a lot more of the managerial aspects than maybe i thought it was beforehand uh but you know line editing is probably my favorite part of it that's the other kind of crazy part of it because that's the part that's the closest to the the writing and sort (laughs) of you know helping writers make pieces better Uh is really why you kind of get Get up in the morning and and what brings joy to it and you know the rest is is kind of what you do in between that it's mm-hmm. like playing defense right you know you really want to be playing offense yeah and uh, i'm like one of those um you know gary sheffield types where it's just like uh, defense is something that i do in between it bad, right
1: <laughs> well you know it's gonna be curious to see how that evolves over time um because setting the vision and commissioning stories and shaping stories and um, motivating stories is a is a real impactful contribution and 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 but farther from the writing piece and so maybe that's something that evolves more over time we'll we'll be curious to hear from you on that
4: well, from, from what I've tinkered so far, uh, chat GBT, GPT still needs an editor. So I think right. that that's probably exactly. where the future lies, right?
1: Well, you, you don't need writers, exactly. Just get a few of those things spinning and do, do your edit magic. All right, listen, man, Let's let's talk hockey. We've been referring to it. Shane keeps us apprised. Some team in the Northeast has been running off a bunch of W's. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I got it. I wonder you. why. Yeah, I, so I mean,
4: excited about
2: it. I mean, I'm not even honestly. You know, my a lot of my sports allegiances are Boston based, specifically. You know, football and baseball, hockey. I have a prior kind of yeah. Canadian allegiance, so yeah. I don't. I didn't get as into the Bruins when I was up there, but I'm still amazed to. Sort of see what they've been doing. I know you guys have written some on five thirty eight about what's been going on with the Bruins. It's amazing to me. I keep expecting them to fall back down to kind of, you know, at least what 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 hockey teams usually do during
0: well, the season. Well, they only They're, went two and one this week. That's true. That's true. But <laughs> so they, big uh, step down. That's
2: right. But uh, I mean, by the you way, did they
1: lose to the Kraken? Our, our Kraken? They lost like three nothing sometime in the yeah. last week. They they yeah, paced the Flyers garland. like
2: 6 nothing last night. So, uh, they, made up for they just it. destroyed right. Philadelphia. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about with hockey, but I feel like the first step has to be like kind of what the Bruins have been doing and how they're just so kind of historically dominant right now.
4: Yeah, they are basically the story of the season so far, which is kind of funny to say about a team that has been among the best teams for a while now, you know, even if they don't always win the cup, they have been in that kind of contending conversation for a really long time. And that goes across like coaches and, you know, various different changes, but they still have that that
1: core. Give us Mm -hmm. give us a sense of why that would be when you see that kind of persistence. What what attribution should we make? Who's responsible for that?
4: Well, I do think that they have had like a great core. If you think about Patrice Bergeron, who's one of the most underrated players, I think in the history of hockey, I guess he's kind of been getting his due as more time has go on. Uh, but him and uh, Brad Marchand are two guys that have been the cornerstones of this franchise for a long time. And when you have two guys like that, you can kind of build around that. And they've done a really good job of adding young players around that. If you think about David Pasternak and Charlie McAvoy and some of these other guys, and they've, uh, they've, they, kind of added and retooled on the fly, but still we would not have expected this team to come out and be this good this year. If anything, I think a lot of people are calling for them to take a step back just because they had some injury injuries like McAvoy and Marchand were not expected to play at the very beginning of the season, but they came back earlier than expected. And uh, the goaltending, also, I should mention Linus Allmark, has been one of the best goalies in the league, maybe the uh, front runner for the Vezina Trophy as best goalie. So you kind of add those elements in, and it just is one of those seasons that you see every once in a while where people have compared it to like the 1984 Tigers or something, where it's just like you click out of the gate. And just it's a charmed season. Yeah. And I don't know, as analytics guys, should we buy into that? Because there's a lot right. of narrative happening there <laughs> right, as right. well. When it feels like you talk about teams of destiny and things like that, the team of destiny does not always win. But sometimes it just seems like there are seasons where everything kind of falls into place. And it feels like that way for the Bruins so
1: far. Neil, what what does analytics tell us about where their advantages have been coming from? Can we make Can we parse between offense defense goaltending uh, special teams whatever how can, can we make that parsing
4: well, I would say basically the answer uh, is yes, uh, in terms oh, of like, really? which area has okay. been the best. They've had well, one of the best offenses, one of the best defenses, best goaltending, like I mentioned, you know, one of the best power plays and the best penalty kills, I think the best penalty kill in hockey so far. So it's Jeez. really been like one of those across the board things. And normally you might attribute that to coaching. If you yeah. think about um, like, hey, you've got a great system in place. Uh, and this is Jim Montgomery's first year at the helm of the team they had bruce cassidy uh who went to las vegas and they're actually doing better too as well so hockey coaching is a very fascinating subject so hold on hold on you're
1: telling me you're telling me that this unexpected performance like you've got this entity cruising along always pretty good and all of a sudden they're exceptional and there's a first year coach i mean are we running an experiment if you're running the experiment if you're running the experiment you're giving a lot of credit to that first year coach right yeah, you
4: would do that, except for the fact that also the coach they did have is also doing well. uh, having, you know, a, a, a good and season I, with Vegas. Mm-hmm.
2: And, I, and I, I like the fact that you kind of call it a charm season because, I mean, I do think what you need to have for something like this to happen is not just obviously the pieces of a successful team, but also... I think they're just, I mean, I think part of them just being dominant in, like, every part of every component of hockey, there, there is just some, I think, some luck involved. And so, like, you know, I think we can call a season a charm season, especially in retrospect, but I'm not sure prospectively, do you, you know. Do you, do you
1: believe in momentum? Because the conversation we just had yeah. with Josh would suggest, hey, okay, so they're charmed, including chance breaking their way for the first half of the season. And that's going to facilitate success in the second half. Of this. Do you believe that story?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I believe in I believe in f- success in the second half of the season, maybe not at historical levels, because I think it's that historical level that I think is part charm, part skill. I mean, they're, okay. I think, a very good team, and maybe even on a, you know, on true latent ability, a better team than we thought they were, but, you know... Could, could they still have, a, like, a first-round X in the play? Like, do, do I expect this well, that's to what continue? I was ask. in that's the playoffs? That's what I was going to that, that, so, ask, Neil, Neil. probably has some thoughts on that S- as S-Neil, well. So, Neil, how
0: far above one out of 16 do we put the Bruins here? I mean, we got to give them it. like you know, uh, Shane's been— we've talked about the randomness in hockey and playoff series is considerably high. You know, I remember when the Lightning were the best team in hockey, lost in the first yeah. round. It's
1: an NHL tradition. I mean Toronto, I know. Toronto's been carrying yeah. the banner but for I'm, a while. But
0: I'm saying, are, do you give them— No, if we take one out of 16, are they one out of eight? Are they double the average team, triple the average team? You can't put them higher than that. How high would you put them right now to win the Cup?
4: Well, so right now, uh, our model, which is based on ELO ratings, has them at 24% to win the Cup, which is just about, you know, I think the Avalanche were around there during the middle of last season. Maybe the Lightning have been there at times as well. We're in an era where... um, I don't know what it means, but we have seen some of these teams that are actually the best teams on paper do better in the playoffs recently than the reputation, which Mm -hmm. like you guys were alluding to is that it's just a crapshoot. And we saw that in 2019, the season you guys were talking about just then when the lightning got swept in the first round by the blue jackets after uh, I think setting or tying the record for most wins in a season. So like, we're not that far removed from it. And yes, there's that whole like COVID season or season and a half on the, Uh, in between the two. So I don't know if that meant anything. Uh, But yeah, right now, you know, just based on the track records of the teams and the way that they've played so far, and the fact that, you know, the Avalanche are having a little bit of a down season, we can talk about them in a second as well, but I think, you know, a combination of the Bruins just being head and shoulders above everyone else, their goal differential per game is almost double the difference between uh, average and the next best team uh, in, in goal differential per game. So, we're talking about that historic nature of the team. I do think they'll give back some of that to, to what you guys. As we're saying earlier as well because so much of it has been about goaltending, and Omar is a good goalie. He's had a track record of being good. I think people are underrating him before he joined the Bruins because the Bruins and their fans are very uh, exacting on their their players. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know that he has this type of season in his in his past. Yeah, he'd track been record. in the so Vesna
2: that- contention. Seems to me a little bit of luck in
4: addition to skill there. Right, exactly. And so I think, you know, the best goalies are worth best as we can tell, maybe like 30, 40 goals above replacement per year. You knock that down by about half, that's like 20 net goals uh, over the course of 82 games. That does eat into your goal differential a little bit. But the rest of the team, I think you could count on, given the, the talent that they have and the names that they have, to maintain their performance going forward. So it's one of those things in hockey where you bake in some randomness and you look at who is on the team among the skaters. I think that's the big thing and whether they're doing well. And some of these underlying stats, like expected goal differential and uh, possession numbers and things like that. And the Bruins have been one of the best teams at that as well. Maybe not the best, but one of the best. And so that's why I think that it's a little bit less luck based than if you had a team that just was totally out of left field. So, Neil, the other thing that,
0: of course, goes along with it is it is a zero-sum game. So if the Bruins are eating up all these points, the teams they're playing are going to have less points So, by definition. So I would assume at some point part of this model is maybe the first round or two, they're going to be – I'll make this up. They score 130 points for the season. They may play a team with 80 points or 90 points, of which I would imagine, similar to a discussion we had in Q1 about why are the Chiefs a 25% chance to win the Super Bowl? Yeah because their first round matchups like an 80% chance is the same thing probable in boss in, in hockey. Like, do we have the Bruins like an 80 or 90% chance to win round one? Maybe it goes 90, 70, 60, 50. Can it ever be that high or is it something different?
4: Yeah. I don't know what the exact number would be this season. um, but I do think that that's right where we've seen a more sort of stratified league can give the favorites a better chance in the first round. Whereas, As you would expect, if there was more uncertainty about who the best teams were, you'd also have that carry over into the odds of of – through round one so you know just as a comparison point last year the avalanche were 79 percent to win the first round of the playoffs so that's around your your chance you know this is before the playoffs so we're not quite there yet with with this season but that's sort of a reference point that you can point to of being a heavy favorite and of course the avalanche went on to win the stanley cup so you know it it I think is a little bit more of a top heavy league than we've seen in the past as well. And I don't know why. I mean, that's kind of the crazy thing about uh, eras in sports on like a very macro level is is it just that teams have figured out how to manage the cap better? Uh, if, if you have a lot of talent, that was a thing that I think was creating a lot of parody early on was you had a league that didn't really have caps on spending. It was very much like baseball up until the lockout that wiped out the whole 2005 season. And so on the other side of that, you saw teams really come to grips, struggle to come to grips with how to deal with that. And the teams that had been the best previously, they weren't always the best. The flyers were in salary cap hell coming out of that, um, lockout and gradually over time i think the more well-run teams and the teams that kind of figured out how to how to manage the cat more some of that is like don't allocate so much money to goaltending that was one of the first lessons that you could kind of do is build around that that base of skaters and the bruins were probably one of the better teams at that because they you know tim thomas i remember was a guy that wasn't even drafted and was playing in the minor leagues and within a couple of years of that he was the best goalie on the planet and was leading them to the cup so they may have been ahead of the curve on that for a while anyway
1: well, it's an interesting idea that that maybe analytics and, and more generally managerial sophistication is more heterogeneous in NHL than some of the other leagues. There's, been, there's you know, more cultural resistance in some sense in hockey than certainly in baseball and probably basketball. So if that's true and some of these clubs can get a head start, it might lead to a little more persistence. That's, that's interesting. Can we get a few more storylines around the league? That division – I mean, we've got we have we have little investments in various teams and players and analysts around the league, and that division unfortunately has a couple of them. So our our buddy Sam Ventura is running analytics for the Sabers now, and they're kind of middling so far. The Leafs were always Leafs fan because of Dubas, and and because they've had a hard run for I don't know fifty years. So maybe they need to not come out number one in the division and and win from behind. But let's go somewhere else. The West looks interesting. I mean, what the heck with the Winnipeg Jets? You could have convinced me that the Winnipeg Jets didn't exist anymore. Like, they, they had moved well, they, or something. Well,
4: they, they, they did. And then they... They moved back. And
1: they came back? Well, they came All back. right. All right. Well, they're as, top of this.
4: As someone from Atlanta, I can tell you about the history of these Winnipeg Jets.
1: Okay. No, yeah. half
4: of Canada is filled with ex-Atlanta teams. It's great. Well,
1: is, is there a chance yeah, that the Hartford true. Whalers are going to come back? Or we, do we have other teams that are going to? Okay. So tell you us know, about the Jets. and then, Maybe. And then, and then tell us about the Pacific, because we've got two expansion teams down there, including our Kraken at number two, just behind their previous expansion brethren, the Golden Knight. So I want quick stories on the Jets, Knights, and Kraken.
4: Yeah, so the Jets, well, they are in the same division as the defending Stanley Cup champion, Colorado Avalanche. And I don't think anybody would have told you that at this point of the season, the Jets would have 12 more points in the standings than the Avs do. And Avs have their own whole injury-related problems. I think they're going to be able to pull out of it. There's a lot of good signs for them still. And they've already started in some ways um, this weekend with some convincing wins against some bottom feeders. But if you look at Winnipeg, You know, they have, we talked about goaltending. They have one of the best goalies too, and they've had for a long time in the form of Connor Hellebuck. He has been, I guess, anytime you play for Winnipeg, you're just going to be underrated. You're not going to be talked about enough. And so he is like a perennial Vezina candidate And he's having one of the best seasons of his career. They also have a guy named Josh Morrissey at defense who is having a great season. If you look at the adjusted stats, which I'm a big fan of at Hockey Reference, which put numbers in sort of a context-neutral state, and they also prorate to like an 82-game season. Morrissey is on pace for an 85-point adjusted-point season as a defenseman, which is really, really, really high. Like defensemen don't generally contribute that much offense, so between him – Kyle Connor, Pierre-Luc Dubois, these guys, uh, they're, they're you know kind of an all-around complete team. And they were a team that maybe it looked like their time in the sun had passed uh, a couple of years ago and that it might be time for a reboot. Maybe put them in the same category as like a Nashville or a team like that where it's like, hey, guys, just press the reset button already. Well, this is what happens when you don't do that and you make some moves. And you still have great goaltending. You can still uh, be a contender. Uh, and so I'm curious to see how they play out. And the Stars also got to mention them in that division. So hold on, before you sky- leave Winnipeg,
1: mm-hmm. what what kind of support do they have? I mean, what else is going on in Winnipeg in February? <laughs> do they have crazy crowds? Is it a great environment? Should we be making it's the road Paris trips? The Paris of the plains. Should have we be going to, to Manitoba? <laughs> I want to go to Manitoba in February. I do. I want to experience this. But do I need to schedule around a hockey game?
4: You should. I mean, they are really passionate, and that was one of the arguments for them getting a team back. They're one of the few uh, cities that has, like, had a team relocate away from them and then managed to actually get one back. That's really rare, If even if you look at, like, all the major um, pro sports you know markets uh-huh. to be able to convince a team to come back is pretty special and you know i don't know where they rank in like attendance and things like that i think that was one of the big concerns and one of the reasons why they moved them to, to begin with but they built a you know an expanded arena compared to where they uh, the capacity that they had the first go round, and they probably have one of the more passionate fan bases I okay. mean, hockey Good. in canada is, is i don't need to tell you guys it's just really a religion and i used to do a weekly radio show with um guys in winnipeg which is like its own whole story but they were just like some of the greatest guys and they just you know they love their hockey up there so i'm glad to see it happen as an atlantan who has lost that team to them <laughs> i have no ill feelings that's for
1: that's them. very that's very large of you um well you started <laughs> to talk about dallas which of course is another transplant from the north the former minneapolis or minnesota north stars longtime dallas stars right. now they're right behind winnipeg in that division so what what, what do you have on those guys
4: well, I, so I love Jason Robertson. He's the best player on their team, and he has blossomed from being like an under-the-radar guy, like I called him the most underpaid player in the league last year, uh, to now he's just like flat-out superstar. He's on pace for a 52-adjusted goal and 106 adjusted points season. So he's in that MVP conversation. I don't think anybody is going to track down Connor McDavid as usual. But uh, he has been their best player so far. They've also gotten uh, great goaltending by Jake Ottinger, And just the whole team, it's another case where they have kind of built this team sneakily. Like they went to the cup final a few years ago, they lost to Tampa Bay It was in the bubble season in 2020 and people didn't really take them seriously because it was like, okay, it's one of those fluke things that happens. I think they had a um, negative goal differential during the regular season, maybe. And then it's like, what do you even make of that regular season? So I think people were tempted to kind of look at them as a fluke and, you know, not be able to kind of get back to those heights. Well, here we are a few years later. They have really actually rebuilt a, a core that that I think has a lot of sustainability. So I'm liking them uh, in that division. And Colorado has a lot more competition than I think they would have thought if they had looked at it. Or they would have predicted maybe like the St. Louis Blues and maybe yeah. the Predators or someone like that would have actually put up a fight against them. Instead, it's actually really the Jets and the Stars that that are leading that division.
1: Well, it's a sad thing. Um, well, no, the the Pacific is the sad thing for our friend Shane. We're, we're going to leave the Pacific off. We've got more hockey coming in future weeks. We before we run out of time with you, Neil. We want to talk about the NFL because, of course, we're at peak NFL season. And though it didn't make your list as top two sports, we know you pay a lot of attention. And we're curious. <laughs> it's
4: a solid third. It's a solid it's, third. All it's right, right in there. That's yeah. that's
1: quite. That's below expectation for us for us men. Um so uh what we have got eight teams left. Um where where would you put your chips for the Super Bowl matchup and the Super Bowl winner?
4: Uh so I'm gonna have to go with the Bills and the Niners and the reason why, so like you know, like you guys, follow the Eagles, root for the Eagles. I hey, I hey, just hey, really hey. more of a gut feel type of thing where I feel like based on what we saw by the eagles uh, playing at full strength with Jalen Hurts starting against the the Giants backups a few weeks ago in a game they needed to win for seeding they barely scraped by in that game i'm se- you know the Giants offense seems to be really peaking right now i know it goes against the numbers but i just have a feeling you know we've seen this with the Giants before maybe this is just bias based on those 07 and 2011 runs which i know shane well, probably Yeah i know i mean you're triggering
2: about. me all over
4: again but i, I know I, 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 I have a similar I mean, dread, whatever you want to call it. I'm getting those vibes. Yep, yeah, I am too. I'm getting those same vibes. You know, Brian Dayball is a great coach. I would put him at coach of the year probably. I mean, it's down to him or maybe like Doug Peterson or somebody like that. But just seeing what he's done, they've really taken the the parts of that like Dave Gettleman era with the Giants that everybody laughed at. Everybody mocked them for those picks that they made. and. They have really made it the best version of that team that it could be. And just seeing, you know, the, the Vikings did not have a prayer of stopping them in that game the other day. So I'm a little scared. I'm scared as an Eagle fan about so, this game. Neil, and so maybe Neil, I'm projecting a little bit. Yeah, I,
1: I, I'm feeling projection. but But you're making an interesting point on the Giants. And I'm curious what your attribution is. How much of that is just ordinary player development? as expected as they reached years two and three, that kind of thing versus something they're doing different on player development player deployment.
4: Well, I think a lot of it is scheme and that's why I kind of give Dayball credit for what they've done with, you know, Daniel Jones, they're using play action more, they're using him as a runner more, they're doing creative, interesting things with Saquon Barkley as sort of a, a decoy. And also as a straight up runner, you know, I know we, 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 uh, don't really think of running backs as being as much of a factor as they were in previous generations. But I'm just liking the way that they've been able to kind of execute that. And we've seen that from Dayball before, like you look at the Bills when he was there, that was kind of peak Josh Allen. I know, you know, he is Mm. an amazing talent in and of himself, but uh, it did seem like maybe a little bit of something was missing when when Dayball left there as well. So I do think that they've brought a lot of kind of for lack of a better term, like modern, interesting concepts to this team that we're lacking under the previous administration,
1: we, we are okay with modern, interesting concepts. We're that's we understand where you're going with that. Okay. By the way, you you had you have the Bills in your Super Bowl pick, and yet you just talked about how they're not what they were with Dayball. So where are you coming from on Bills over the Chiefs? Surely the Chiefs will be will be will be if they both make it through, will be favored.
4: Well, yeah, I do think that they'll be favored and that'll be the neutral site game in Atlanta um, between the two. Uh, And I do think the Bills have a tougher road for sure. If you think about how they're going to get to that game. Yeah. Um, But... Again, this is another one where it's just like me kind of projecting. Like I want to see the the Bills be able to kind of atone for that loss last year against the. Uh, Neil, against you, the
1: you're Chiefs. you're with me, man. We're unsophisticated rubes, just voting with our hearts. We're supposed oh, to be no, analytics, I, I, man. We're it, supposed to be analyticsy. It, I, I'm with I you, know. But. I
4: th- I think it's a, the, the reason why we love sports, and maybe this is now me with the editing and the storylines and the narratives and all that. Yeah, you're, stuff, you're, you're we, losing we your. Live, yeah, we live for those storylines. You know, the redemption arc, the, the, the oh, team I that it. comes so close and, and finally scales the mountain. And I do think the Bills are the best team in the league. I mean, that, and that might be uh, controversial to say because the Chiefs are right there. Uh, I, I also think the Niners are right there. But if you look at the numbers, like expected points added, adjusted for strength of schedule this season, the Bills have been the best team in the league. And I do think that that kind of carries over when it, when it comes down to the uh, neutral site possibly. So, you know, that's why I think I was picking the Niners and I'm picking the Bills to make the Super Bowl, because I do think if the Giants upset following my previous logic, they upset the Eagles, then it's gonna be I, I think the Niners are just too complete of a team for both the Cowboys and potentially the Giants down the line. And then, yeah, the Bills on paper. Best team in the league in terms of things like expected points. So it's not totally based okay. on guns.
1: Yeah, you redeemed yourself a little bit there at the end, you're good. Um now if if we just could tweak one more upside in there we could get back to a Bills Giant Super Bowl. Oh. and give and give oh, the Bills yeah. a chance. Give the Bills a chance to undo the whole thing. That was the first of the four. It would be a huge it redemption is. story. Scott, it, oh, also can we but, get
4: Scott Norwood to – I mean he would be all over the place <laughs> if oh he's still doing yes, like please. interviews or Yes, anything.
1: please. By the way, also <laughs> even better would be uh, Bill's Cowboys because that's what needs redemption. Those middle two Super Bowls <laughs> yeah. against the Cowboys are, are the scars that need to be – actually, no, Norwood. Well, wide the, wide the, ride the is the The final two. Scar.
4: No. They were the second two, right? Because they be they they. the um, lost to the, the, Bills no lost or, to the yeah, Giants? Lost. lost to the now artists now yeah. known as the Commanders, and then they lost to the Bills in an or uh, uh, they yeah. lost to the Cowboys in just a humiliating I, I, loss. I, I think at the Rose they were
1: the, they were the middle. They were the middle two. I forget I think who they the were fourth the was, too. but I was there. Those were the two years I was in Buffalo. Nope. And they were the middle two.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, let me, yeah. either way, let me ask you a question, Neil. Um, when you make predictions, when I'm just ha- interested in how you think about it. So you've picked the Bills and the Niners. Neither of them is the one seed. Do you ever think, like, let us am- like, let me see how I can frame this. You've chosen two upsets, not one. Do you ever think about that when you come up with predictions like that? Like, you know, now both upsets need to happen. So while that might be your favorite in both, it kind of leads to both Being an upset and that whenever I make those predictions, I step back and say, do I really think both those things are going to happen? And that would make me modify my prediction.
4: Yeah. And I, that's a great point. And that also comes up a lot in March Madness. Right. Like, when right. You're thinking I was thinking, about, thinking like, of how March many Madness. Seeds, exactly. Right. Exactly. And you're sort of looking at it and being like, oh, man, it's so boring. I'm beating myself up over having like all, you know, three one seeds or four one seeds or something. But, yeah, if you start to dip into those like two and three seeds, um, but also in March Madness, It's fun to pick non-one seats, right? Like, you almost feel embarrassed, like, putting down that chalk bracket with all the number ones and everything, even if you have good reasons to do it. And so I think that's another reason why it's like we're not necessarily – Obviously, our our model that's on the site, the interactive, is there just to be the cold hard, maximize predictive accuracy or whatever. But when we're talking as football fans, I think it's important to just be like, you know what? I got a feeling about this. I, I like the idea of like what is the maximally plausible fun outcome? That's I think what we need to be sort of targeting, right? Is not the not maximizing predictive accuracy in like strict sense. Who it's who like invited what's it?
1: the most fun Fun Who invited thing this guy? that
4: can happen? Yeah, and if yeah. The, by the way, if the Eagles
0: beat the Giants, does your prediction change?
4: Because uh, you said the Giants yes, were going to beat the Eagles. Of course, it must. Oh,
0: okay. So then, then the Eagles, then the yeah. Eagles are home to the Niners, and then you like the Eagles.
4: Right. And, the, and we learned something about the Eagles that like conditional on beating the Giants and moving on in that game where it's like, hey, they might be shaky based on what we saw against them head to head with the Giants a few weeks ago. They've quelled that concern. They would be much more likely to, to beat the Niners in the next round.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the maximally fun matchup. I don't know if it's plausible. Is Eagles against Jaguars? We finally sort out bird versus <laughs> cat. Well, the Doug Peterson match, but also we sort out this bird versus cat Neil, versus Neil, cat
1: situation. Payne, I am blaming you for this. This never would know, have happened. I know. I am mascot I've ruined the show. mascot rivalries never would have happened. Except you've moved into editor story creating. It's just a whole. It's a whole different vibe. Hey, by the that way, changed, here, man. But, no, <laughs> but you've just corrected. A false memory of mine, which is I'm still getting my head around. You're right. The Cowboys were the second two Super Bowls, which means that was in, I was in Buffalo for Redskins and the first Cowboys, not the second one. I just completely got that wrong. That's oh, so when Giants, and they were much Redskins, closer to winning Cowboys, the— Cowboys. Yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah, they were much closer to winning the the second of the uh, of the rematch as well. Like the first one was just a total clown show. Um, like Jim Kelly got knocked out very early. Complete disaster. Uh, Frank Reich, yeah, could not replicate his comeback uh, against the Oilers. But yeah, in the second one, they actually
1: were competitive. They may have been leading at the half. They even. were leading at the half, and, and there was yeah, a fumble that
0: occurred. That Thurman apart. Thomas fumbled. James right Washington. At the beginning. Yeah. Well, this
1: this means yeah. that if we could get a if we could get a Buffalo Philadelphia Super Bowl. They could lose to the Eagles and have a full uh, and never run against yeah, the, the, the whole the NFC. I mean, yeah. No one has lost a Super Bowl the entire division before. That I would, would just feel be...
4: very bad for them if that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so sad, and that's another reason. Like Buffalo, don't you think? Given this Josh Allen era and how how great they've been at times, uh, and what that fan base has been through, don't you think they're the most deserving team we've seen? Serial question. Win. We've seen there's that. No,
1: there's no team in any sport. That's more des- in North American sport. I mean, the Leafs are coming up on it, but no, these guys, these guys deserve it more than anybody else. No question. All right, Neil, we got to let you go, or else we'll end up talking about some new mascot thing here in a second. Great, <laughs> great talking to you, and great hearing about your move down to Arkansas. Good luck down there. Good luck to your wife in her new position, and uh, have fun for these next couple of weeks in the playoffs. We'll talk to you later this spring, I'm sure.
4: Thank you so much, guys. It was great catching up. And uh, I'm glad I could derail the show.
1: <laughs> you're, you're, we're, anytime. Right? I, mean, I think Any, anytime. I was
4: actually, <laughs> I take
2: at least half credit for that derailment. Right. All
1: right. That's Neil Payne. You can follow him on Twitter at Neil underscore Payne. You can catch his work at 530, both as a writer and as an editor. Long time friend of the show. Possibly the very first friend of the show, to be honest with you. It's been a long run. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us. After the break,
0: you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on
2: business radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Coming to you from the studio, Huntsman Hall, University of Pennsylvania, Wharton school Kate Massey hosting with Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner is away today. We are rolling into the fourth and final quarter of the show. Just out of an interview with Neil Payne, longtime favorite, longtime friend of the show. What's the what's the what's the term for a person who can speak about any sport? We didn't stretch his skills today, but we could have stretched his skills because he does. He's quite broad on sports. Fun, oh, it's fun. like the
2: polyglot of uh, sports. Yeah, polyglot of sports. Sports, yeah. sports
1: polyglot. Neil Payne, um, gentlemen. We've talked a lot of football, and we just got a little hockey as well. There are other sports. We should we should talk about some. There's some interesting other sports. I happen to know that the first tennis major is going on, and somebody in this room has, I bet, been watching matches. Match, at least the ones that haven't been delayed or rescheduled or or whatever by weather. What's going on down there? What's this extreme? Weather situation that's causing havoc.
0: Well, there was you know it's there, obviously there's summer. There's extreme heat, so they have a heat index that they call at the Australian Open, where if it's above, I think it's 90 degrees, um, you know, feels like 90, some combination of temperature and humidity. They automatically suspend the matches, at least the ones that are the outdoor matches. They have two covered courts. So all the other courts are suspended. And that's what happened yesterday. <laughs> so it was 95 degrees Fahrenheit plus humidity. And so on, it's not a subjective thing. An automatic suspension of the matches came. Then, there were also... Look, Eric,
1: how does that compare to what happens in, in um, New York in September? I know. Mean, uh, be... They keep playing. And it's pretty hot.
0: It's absolutely – it's not quite as hot in New York in September. This is the dead of the middle of the summer. Plus, it's actually Melbourne's closer to the – much closer to the equator than New York is. Okay. Um, But again – and then there were two rain – binges or periods yesterday so the problem is people went on and off the court all the matches didn't get completed and this is actually a massive advantage we've talked about the value Mm -hmm. of rest but also knowing when you're going to play like nadal djokovic they're on the covered courts they know when they're going to play they to
1: to be clear they get they're on the covered court because they're a bigger draw it's like being center court in wimbledon with more more seats for fans and things like that
0: yes more seats, but also just- because they're champions. They're also returning champions. I mean, Nadal did win last year, so mm-hmm. they're going to put him on there. Of course, Djokovic is, whatever, a nine-time champion out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're always going to be there. So now they have an advantage, which means their opponents, who might not have finished, Djokovic finished his match because he won in three, but his opponent didn't. So his opponent may have to pay back-to-back days where he does not have to play back-to-back days.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think that's a huge, huge advantage. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know...
2: Yeah, and I was going to say, given the extreme, like, I mean, we're probably not that the probability of extreme heat and stuff like that is not going to be going down over time. No. Like, do you think well, they'll they'll <laughs> consider like why played at the height of summer? No, they why not put that's it? What they're talking about okay. Now. They're so already no, no. talking about. There was okay, an article that just came it to our spring, mo- their fall, or something like it that. To,
0: well, the problem is, so you already have. So, when are the other majors in tennis? So we've got the French Open, which is in June, Mm -hmm. right? We've got Wimbledon, which is uh, July slash August. And then we've got the U.S. Open, which is in September, you know, right around Labor Day weekend. So kind of that period is out. And you don't want to play it in their winter so you could push it back to February, March, somewhere like mm-hmm. that. That's what I've heard being discussed. Like, why are they playing when these temperatures are always so hot? And it and leads to a competitive disadvantage also for certain players. Yeah, it's
1: not at all obvious why they wouldn't just bump it, bump it out a month or two. Like here's a question, like, and and this is something we've talked about on, about golf periodically. But what is the optimal clustering or spreading out of majors in sports, in tennis and golf?
0: Well, I think golf is one of those sports. We actually talked about this. I remember like a year ago, where you do get guys get locked in with their swings in golf. By, by the way,
1: by the way, listeners, this isn't a Bradlow momentum story. I'm this is not saying momentum. This is an empirical observation that there are regime shifts in golf, like definable regime shifts.
0: Yeah, in like golf. Scotty Scheffler had one where he was winning every turn. My
1: in the summer that he Morikawa.
0: I mean, Justin Thomas said period, look, the greatest s- period I've seen. Tiger, Tiger Woods, Woods for, for about 10 12 years. years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But also <laughs> someone not as great, but still great. I remember one period when I was an undergraduate here, Freddie Couples like was mm-hmm. winning every yeah. single week, and he won the Masters in that period as well but my point is if you want to get someone have a potential for a grand slam cluster those tournaments close together because someone's locked in period could cover two three of the majors if you spread them out i think there's more of a chance you're probably mm-hmm. going to distribute the
1: majors more evenly amongst
0: the do you players have
1: a, do you have a policy preference between those two things
0: I do. I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. I don't watch. I I like watching horse racing as long as a horse can win the Triple Crown. (laughs) I like watching golf more. If someone has the opportunity to, I loved last year in tennis where you guys may not remember Nadal won the Australian and the French. He was in the semifinals of Wimbledon, had to pull out because of injury. But could you imagine if he had won Wimbledon? And now it was with Djokovic the year before. Djokovic made it all the way to the finals yeah. of the U.S. Open with the chance to win the uh, Slam, okay. and lost to Medvedev in the finals. But no, I I like the opportunity okay. for someone to win. Okay, all
1: you've of them. you've convinced me. You've convinced but me. But you can and
0: still move the Australian to, to March. Well, yeah, this is
1: well. Let's just talk about what's happened. We the we have seen a major with a huge shift in golf in the last two years, three years now. They moved the PGA from August as the last major. To fill the spot between the Masters and the and the US Open, I believe. That's correct. And so it does compress that within golf for sure, which is probably why we were talking about it in the past. So you've got a shorter window from the first major to the last major by a month because it brought it brought instead of the instead of the PGA in August, it's the British and or the Open in July. So you've got this more compressed – so Eric's got a prediction. You're going to take 100 years to figure this one out. But there should be more grand slams in golf as a result of the PGA. And you could make the same mark. Well, the first question, Eric, is do we see that kind of regime shift processes in tennis like we do in golf?
0: Yeah, so I I think tennis is much more of a – and this is what's made the three greatest champions of all times different is that they all won on every surface. And that's rare. Like, Federer would probably be the worst of them, actually. He won one French Open, and he won it the year that Nadal lost to Robin Soderling in the second round. But Mm -hmm. if that hadn't happened, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty convinced Federer would have zero French Opens. Mm -hmm. At one point, Djokovic, we could argue, caught Nadal at the French, beat him at the French. Now, Nadal's you know, taken come back. has come back and won the last years, including beating Djokovic last year. Um, but I think that's I think surface matters more in tennis. It really matters. Like right now on the women's side, which you know we talk about some, but in my view, not enough. Which is why it's wide open. You know, we've always said, why are there more? It's because it's really hard to be good on all the surfaces. Right now, the number one player in the world on the women's side is Iga Swiatek by far. But her worst surface, she's not a hard court player, and she could get beaten by a big serving player. She's not a big serving player. So for her, it's going to be, I think, in tennis, there's going to be greater variance because of surface differences. Some people are good on play. Some some people good on grass. Some people good on hard courts. In golf, I understand there's different grass types and all of this. But And there's different styles. The British Open tends to be a Lynx course, but not the variation right. where the surface really drives For sure. rankings a lot.
1: OK, so between surface differences in introducing variation and perhaps being less of a regime shift sport, it, the clustering matters less. On those dimensions, anyway, you could argue – in general, you'd expect maybe, maybe it helps to space them out so they can recover. You know, tennis players these days play less than they used to because the money is good enough that they don't have to play as much. And it's all about recovery. And so the spacing out might be helpful if your goal, if your goal, Eric, if you got the Bradley Utility Function, it says more Grand Slams is good.
0: Well, the other difference also in tennis is that, um, you know, all golf tournaments, forget live golf for a second, are four rounds, 18 holes. In tennis, the majors on the men's side goes to five sets. And that's a huge difference. So, you know, you know, this is just variation. You Sure, you can beat Nadal one set or Djokovic one set. Let's see you beat them three sets that's the big challenge yeah and
2: I mean I think if we're talking about somebody winning a grand slam in a calendar year I mean have we ever even seen that in golf I think there's too much parody at the very top you know the top 10 golfers in the world tiger are had the club- tiger slam the, ti- the tiger slam yeah he, maybe he didn't
0: t- win them on the calendar year but he had all four at once
2: yeah okay so i mean but but that has happened kind of once in golf history basically Maybe bobby
0: jones in the 30s mm-hmm. in 90 years it was done it's been done. And, maybe and, ben and, and, Hogan and, and i, and did I think
2: it, I, I, I would wager that's because kind of the the parity or or the sure. difference between one and ten in golf is more more compact than the difference between 1 sure. and 10 in Absolutely,
0: tennis. absolutely. And look, that's the, the other part that's going to be difficult. And again. By, by the
1: way, Eric, off the top of his head, named not only the golfer, but also approximately the length of time ago that, that it has happened, is Bobby Jones in, oh, nice, yeah, yeah, in yeah, yeah, 1930. Nice. <laughs> oh, exactly awesome. 1930. Oh, good, awesome. good,
0: wow. good. Alright, so I, I'm not uh, senile yet. Um, the other part that I, I agree with you, Shane, I think There's much more spacing in tennis. And the thing that still surprises me to this day is how a 35-year-old Djokovic, who's minus 118, by the way. So Djokovic over the entire field and Nadal are still dominating tennis when they're 35 and 36. Like, there's no 25-year-old that can, like, consistently beat them. And so the answer is no. No. No, there really isn't. Have somebody beaten them here and there? Yeah, but they're still winning most of the majors. Matter of fact, last year—well, they didn't win all the majors. Alcaraz won the U.S. Open last year. He's injured, so he's not playing at the uh, at the Australian. But I'm still amazed that you know, Father Time is undefeated. Well, it is undefeated. It's undefeated. Federer's not playing anymore, but these guys, after twenty-year careers, are still the There's nobody that would pick anybody over the two of them. I understand Medvedev is ranked second. He hasn't been playing well. Nadal or Djokovic is going to win the Australian. I don't know which of the two, but one hold, of the hold, two.
1: Anytime someone says something with that much certainty, I, my, my my ears perk. Well, out.
0: they have betting probability right now. They have about sixty percent odds. I mean, Djokovic is minus one eighteen to win. Then Medvedev, this is shocking about the odds. Medvedev is plus 450, and then Nadal's plus 1300. And then everyone else is worse. That's the top three. Uh-huh. So maybe it's, I'll call it 55% to Djokovic. Maybe it's about 15 to 20% for Medvedev. Maybe Nadal's about 5 or 6%. And then the other 120 something players, there aren't that many left yet because they played the first round. They have about 15% probability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. shocking to me that so much mass is on two or three players. Okay,
1: but it does take that third player. It does take Medvedev to get to quite the statement you made, to have the conviction. I thought I heard two players with like one of those two guys are going to win. I don't think it's Medvedev one of is playing well
0: win. right now. But yes, if you believe the betting odds, the three of them together get you to 80%. It takes one player to get to 50%. Yeah, yeah, right. If
2: the majors were three sets instead of five, how much would these probabilities – Get reduced because part of it is is you know as you're sort of saying is that like having it be five sets kind of favors. Somebody that's a top player like makes it even more probable that the top player. I don't have the answer, wins. but
0: I because here's the here's the endogeneity problem. You could say, well, why don't we just look at all the other tournaments and see what happens? Yeah, but these guys aren't trying as yeah. hard at these other yeah. tournaments, so you yeah. can't just empirically look at them and say what's the ri- win rate of them in the other
1: tournaments. And the same the same for you can't just look at three sets, the first three sets. Yeah, no, set you can't do oh, that no, either. But here
0: not. would be an example of a player, Shane, that I think if it was a three set tournament, each match you could beat anybody. I know John Isner guy serves 150 miles an hour. Every one of his sets, generally, about eight, 60% of his sets go to tiebreakers. it's a coin flip. Could he beat Nadal or Federer, or federer Djokovic? two out of three? Yeah, just get them both to tiebreaks, see what happens. Now, he's probably going to lose that tiebreaker to them. But, yeah, I think, yeah. I'm not, let me just so- say the following. I'll make a prediction. This is just... And I hope mm-hmm. our Twitter followers, at WMoneyBall, tweet me if you totally disagree. I would say if this was best of three, it would cut 80% from the top three down to 50% from top three. Wow. Okay. That much.
1: We talked about this with soccer at the end of the World Cup. We're like, how, how do they decide to play 90-minute matches? And we, we kind of puzzled it out. There's kind of two dimensions. One is, how much do you need to discriminate between teams? And you don't want to play so much that you discriminate deterministically, but you want to play enough – Right, you have to choose just discrimination, but the other dimension is um, endurance. How much do you want to wear people out? You don't want to drive people to the ground because then it becomes an uh, exercise of something other than skill. So these are kind of the two dimensions, and it'd be curious to plot different sports on those dimensions. If there right. is there is a, there is a yeah. way to do it, if we we're measuring people we're measuring people physiological now in a way that we could. Somehow operationalize endurance. And, of course, we can play with discrimination over as a function of how many repeats we get in a match. The one,
0: the one difference I would say maybe you brought up, Kate, which is why it's maybe not as certain one might seem. There is a significant probability that Nadal or Djokovic gets injured. And it's more likely in a five-set match. So they've got to play seven potentially five-set matches. At age 35, 36, the probability of injury is much higher than a 25-year-old.
1: Which seems that – but do we know that empirically? So we should be able to know how many guys – like withdrawing from a match due to injury as a function of age.
0: I don't know that number, but it's knowable. It's, it's knowable. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Joe, as I mentioned – Nadal had to withdraw from the semifinals of Wimbledon last year because of an injury. He didn't
1: play, right? He, did, he no, he, he withdrew he before, didn't, before, the, the,
0: before the match yeah, yeah, started. Yeah. Right, yeah. he was going to play. Um, why can't I think of his name? The Australian, Kyrgios. Yeah. He was playing. Kyrgios ah. was in the finals against. Djokovic because Nadal withdrew right, from the right. final match against Nick Kyrgios. Well, how about,
1: about Kyrios' chances down there in his home tournament?
0: He's injured. He had to withdraw. Oh, he withdrew the day geez. before the tournament started. Okay. No, no, no. There was another wildcard player because of his serving and athleticism on any given day. Can he do it for seven there, matches? This,
1: this reminds me that we need to norm historical like, tennis careers Especially because people just rack up the number of grand slams. We need to norm those grand slams. Each one needs to be normed by difficulty. Like who did they actually run through? Because sometimes yeah. guys get injured. Some guys get you're excluded because of COVID. Some guys happen Joe to Kitch have a, hits good... a
0: ball into a ball person's throat and yeah. gets you know yeah. kicked out of the tournament right. in the third yeah. round. And
1: other, and other times, just to upset the the bracket falls in such a way that a person gets an easier path. This is a this is a doable thing. And I Absolutely. would love to have every Grand Slam where we know this information, adjusted we could do majors. it for 60 years. So adjusted, some are more than one because of the path they had to go through. Some are a lot less than one. And so now we have like an adjusted Grand Slam for difficulty. Well, so the, the path. one
0: thing, it doesn't have to be this way anymore because they're not one and two in the world anymore. Djokovic and Nadal, turns out, they are on the opposite sides of the draw. So for someone potentially to win this major, they're going to have to beat them both. And that's one, that's a big problem. That's a big problem.
1: So that means we're you can expecting... have a
0: positive error term maybe once, but I don't know if you're going to have that positive error term twice.
1: Yeah, well, you've you've you named an issue. This is this this injury potential, which is kind of always uh, fly in the prob- probability ointment. You've got to regress your predictions for that. But you're telling us we might expect an Adal Djokovic final down there, which would be.
0: Well, I, I mean, I think Nadal, that's optimistic. Nadal has won one match. He's two and six in his last so, matches. And
1: Medvedev is on his side of the, of the bracket?
0: That's a good question. I don't know whose side Medvedev is on. I think the answer is yes, because I remember looking at the draw saying, wow, Nadal's draw, this is your adjusted, is much harder than Djokovic's draw. I'd much rather be on Djokovic's side.
1: Give us, we're down to the very last bit, but what's the most interesting storyline of the women's side?
0: Can Iga Switek win on a surface she's not great on? Does does the differences in just pure ability, how much does it dominate surface differences? Is Coco
1: Goff in this tournament?
0: She is, and she's playing Emma Raducanu, the young woman that won the British, the, the U.S. Open in the next round. Fascinating match.
1: All right. Well, guys, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. Thank you guys for listening from the studio. Many thanks especially to Deion Simpkins and Matty Datz. Come back and join us next time between now and then. Enjoy your sports.